Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans together, coming out of chapter 12. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, then would you just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand and uh, mark to our passage this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from your Creator to you today. Two verses this morning, famous verses. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we just continue to be under the influence of the afterglow of that video and the reminder of how beautiful the body of Christ is, how diverse it is all around this world, and people loving you and serving you and willing to take the place that is theirs in this time in history in order to uh, do your will in that place that you have put them. Lord, we just want you to know that uh, we are humbled for the privilege that is ours as a church and ours uh, individually to be a part of your body and to be a part of this thing called the kingdom of God. We are deeply grateful for the privilege. We pray that you would use our time in your word this morning to fashion us and to mold us uh, in accordance, Lord, with your will and your plan for our lives. We acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit here right now, and we ask that you'd use these two verses to fashion us as a church and to fashion us individually. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. And we pray that he would add his witness, Lord, to your word this morning as it's taught. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, in heading into Romans chapter 12, we begin our study in the second major division of uh, the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 11, as we have seen, is a, a theological part of the book, deeply, deeply uh, theological a study uh, almost microscopic in terms of Paul looking at this thing called the gospel, God's good news, his great news to mankind of the offer of a salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the power to live an entirely different life, to one day uh, stand on that uh, streets of gold one day in, the, in, in glory in the presence of, of heaven. And, and as he has laid all of that out in those chapters 1 through 11, now as he comes to chapters 12 through 16, he examines the practical side uh, of, of our salvation. And that is the life that we're to live practically uh, because we are Christians, uh, because we are uh, saved. 
And never does the Apostle Paul uh, do it. Never does uh, Jesus himself do it. Doctrine is never given to us in the Bible that we might merely know something. It is always that that knowledge might then translate into our doing, into our thinking, into our being, into our speaking in, in the lives uh, that we le- le- uh, lead. And Jesus put it perfectly in speaking to the disciples in John 13. He said, for you know these things, and it's important to know these things. But he didn't stop there. He said, for you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, this examination of the practical side of our Christian life and that begins in chapter uh, 12, Paul begins all of that with three exhortations. And the exhortations are these. Number one, present your body as a living sacrifice to God, verse one. Number two, do not be conformed to this world, verse two. And number three, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You stop and you think about what Paul has laid out. If you've been with us in the study, you're familiar with Romans chapter 1 through 11. And as he lays all of that out, and then now he talks about what is the practical life that is to flow out of that. And you think about the hundred different places he could go, the hundred different directions he would go in. And you wonder, where would he start? Where would he begin to talk about uh, a life that is... uh, that? that would be to live in, in response to what Christ has done for us in the first 11 chapters. And I think it's fascinating that he begins here, and it only makes sense as we'll see. Before we dive into those three exhortations, it is important to notice, I think, two words in a phrase that are found here in verse 1 uh, that kind of set the stage for everything. And the words are the word, therefore, and the word brethren, and the phrase is, by the mercies of God. When he uses the word brethren, it tells us immediately that this section of the book of Romans and these two verses are directed very specifically toward Christians. Concerning the word therefore, as many of you have already heard, but everybody has a right to hear it and ought to hear it one time in their life, And that is whenever we see a therefore in the Bible, we're always to stop and ask, what is it therefore? Because the word therefore indicates that what is now going to be said is being said in the light of what has just been said previously. That what is being said now is not a new and completely independent thought, but it is simply the continuation of a conversation that has already begun. And, for instance, we all recognize this in the daily of our life. None of us ever goes up to a perfect stranger, whether it might be at a Christmas party or at a gathering of a neighborhood or whatever it might be. We never begin a conversation with them with the word, therefore. Uh, If we did, they would think we were crazy uh, coming up and uh, continuing a a conversation, obviously with them, that they had not been a part of uh, to begin with. And so it always indicates the continuation of a thought and the continuation of the conversation. And when Paul uses the word, therefore, here at the start of chapter 12, he is making, again, very clear, he is not beginning a new conversation at this point in chapter 12, but he is merely continuing 
the conversation that he's been having in chapters 1 through 11. When he uses the phrase, by the mercies of God, this refers, what Paul is referring to as the mercies of God, is everything that is contained. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, every bit of that is the mercies of God. Every bit of it is something that God has given to us in His Son that we don't deserve at all. He begins with justification. And justification is even more than the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is wonderful, but because of our faith in Christ, Jesus sees us, God sees us just as if we had never sinned. Paul in these first 11 chapters spoke of the sanctifying side of the Christian life, that God doesn't just save us and then leave us in bondage to all of the sins that held us in bondage all the days of our life, but he's in, He has introduced a new power into our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit to now live an entirely different quality of life, uh, to live a sanctified uh, uh, life in the power of the Holy Spirit. In those chapters, the mercies of God include, as Paul gets into it in Romans chapter 8, as we saw, our very glorification one day. Not just our justification, our sanctification, but our glorification. That one day we're going to stand, as I said, in the glory of that heavenly scene. Paul speaking of it, that he reckons that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, as, as he spoke in, in chapter uh, 8. And what Paul is declaring here is this, that we are to live the, the practically holy life that he is now going to describe in chapters 12 through 16, we're to do that in response to all that God has first done for us and described in chapters 1 through 11, the mercies of God that He has already extended to us. And I think it's very, very important. I don't think it can ever, ever be emphasized too much or for us to be reminded of it too often the understanding that obedience to God's commandments as a, a Christian, it is never to be done out of a desire to earn something from God or out of some kind of guilt or some kind of condemnation. That is a motivation, but it is not the motivation that God has provided us in uh, the Christian life. The highest motivation for obedience in the Christian life is to simply obey God in the light of what He has first done for us in His Son. And John gets it perfectly in his first epistle in chapter 4, verse 19. We love Him because He, uh, he first loved us. All Christianity is, is a response to the mercies of God, to what God has freely done for us. And obedience to God is an act of worship directed toward Him in response to His goodness to us in Christ. That motivation for obedience that supplies us with the highest motivation we will, can ever possess for obedience, and it is an inexhaustible motivation. 
And this living the Christian life in response, never losing sight to the cross, to Jesus, to God, as we've been led in worship here, and now living my life in response to who He is and what He has done for us. That life lived in response will always produce a greater Christ-likeness, a greater holiness, a greater consecration and, and obedience uh, than any kind of Christianity that ends up being uh, attempting to accomplish out of some kind of guilt or earning or condemnation or legalism. It is the greatest motivation for our obedience. And I think, in fact, that if the mercies of God uh, concerning uh, the, the mercies of God as they're detailed here in chapters 1 through 11. If what God has done for us in His Son, as He lays it out line upon line, precept upon precept in 11 chapters, if that will not move me to obedience in my Christian life, there is nothing on the face of this earth, in the secular world or the religious world, that will ever accomplish it in a person's life. Nothing else will do it if this will not do it. Now we move to the, the exhortations themselves, and the first exhortation is there in verse 1. Paul said, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. And he uses this famous phrase, a living uh, sacrifice. And when you read it perhaps for the first time and, and think about it, it, it appears to be an oxymoron immediately. It, it, two things that don't belong together, a living sacrifice. And, and, and the reason that we have that feeling concerning it and that understanding of it as a student of the Bible is that anyone even with a casual knowledge of the Old Testament knows that sacrifices were not living at the end of the service they, and the end of the sacrifice. But Paul knows exactly what he's doing here when he describes the life that we're to live as being a living sacrifice. And he uses this figure of speech to communicate that every single Christian is to be both dead and alive at the same time in terms of life and in terms of our relationship with God. That yes, we continue to live physically, but we are now dead to our old way of life, dead to our selfishness, dead to our self-will, dead to sin, and, and dead to the, what dominated our old way of life. Again, self in sin. And instead our lives, he says, are now to be surrendered to God and to His purposes for our lives 100%. That's what living sacrifice means. It is a 100% consecration commitment of my life to God and, and for His use and for His purposes. And Paul is taking off the table for any of us who think that this is something that is on the table for us as Christians that we can work out some kind of a 50-50 thing with God. He gets half of it, I get half of it. Or an 80-20, or a 90-10. Paul says there is none of that in the Christian life. 
And, and none of that, a, a self-determined Christianity of that kind is not worthy of a sentence that we've read in the first 11 chapters of this book, let alone the totality of the first 11 chapters. He is worthy and worthy alone of 100% of everything that we are, everything that we have, and to use our lives individually, however He chooses to, for His glory. And if you don't think that needs to be a reminder in our hearts, it certainly needs to be a reminder in, in my mind. There's something about the long term of being a Christian. When Christianity in a person's life goes into the years and then goes into the decades, and there has to be this active resistance against a self-determined, self-defined Christianity. He gets this part of my life, I get this part of my life. He gets this percentage of my life, but I get this percentage of my life. And then to settle in that and live the remaining years of our life or long decades of our life as if that is something that's in play is if that is an option for any Christian in the world to bargain with God in that kind of a way. And Paul takes it off of the table. This is 100%. It is a living sacrifice. Our lives belong to Him in their entirety, not a percentage of them in their entirety. And this isn't the only place that Paul has spoken about this by the Spirit of God. Galatians 2.20, Paul said famously, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He speaks to the church in, at Corinth in his first letter to them. A church that was not getting this concept, a very, very carnal congregation of, of of carnal Christians, and he spoke to them, and he said in chapter 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, and therefore God glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And what Paul is declaring, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to brethren, but he knows us very, very well, and he knows himself very, very well, and how easy it is to settle in with just being a Christian, just being a brethren, just, uh, just uh, knowing Jesus as Savior, but not really knowing Him as Lord uh, of my life. And basically what he's calling for every Christian who hasn't already done it here as he begins this section of the Scriptures is to settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in my life. To know him not merely as Savior, but it wasn't merely the forgiveness of sins that this was all about, but now he has purchased our lives in order to glorify himself in our lives and through our lives to the world that is all uh, around us. Not settling for a, a carnal Christianity as the church in Corinth was doing. It's possible to be a Christian and a carnal Christian. That's why Paul spoke to them and he said, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. I had to speak to you as carnal. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is a carnal Christian? 
A carnal Christian is someone who is a Christian but remains their own self-will. They remain utterly dominated by their carnality, by their flesh. It dominates their life and not, not the Holy Spirit. And Paul warned them against that as he wrote to that church. Jesus spoke to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. And here was a group of Christians in this room, and they, they, they called themselves a church, and he denounced their lukewarmness. It's possible to be a lukewarm Christian. And why were they lukewarm? His denunciation of them, how he came to them, speaks of it. They were filled with themselves, I, me, my, and, and their lives um, completely dominated by their self-will, by material wealth, by their possessions, and, and by power. And I, I tell you, I would contend that this opening exhortation of Paul concerning what constitutes a proper response to all that God has done for us in chapters 1 through 11, if it is taken seriously by even one of us in this room, or all of us in this room, if we take it seriously, uh, this call of God to present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice, that we would not only be considered crazy, fanatical, extreme by the world itself, but we would be considered crazy and extreme and fanatical by many within the body of Christ as a whole who can take a passage like this that is one of the most famous in all of the Bible, memorize it, love it, love the, the, how it flows off of the tongue when it, when it is, is spoken and when it is repeated, but to treat the entire demand of the passage as hyperbole, as something that surely an apostle is supposed to say to the body of Christ, but surely nobody is to take it seriously. And yet Paul uh, knows nothing of the sort related to it as he puts it before us. He lays it out here, the demand, the first exhortation, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. And Paul lays this out without apology and without flinching. And he goes on to say that only such a Christian life is holy and acceptable to God. Again, to know anything about the Old Testament, no one, and he's using Old Testament imagery here, no one would have thought of offering an unholy sacrifice to God under the law of Moses. It was completely forbidden. You brought your all and you brought your best every single time. And under the old covenant, no one would have offered a sacrifice to God that was anything less than what the law of Moses uh, demanded. No one would have dared fiddle with or to cut corners on a burnt sacrifice, or on a sin offering, or on any offering. And what Paul is communicating for us as Christians under a new covenant, living under the weight of the greatest sacrifice that has ever been offered or will ever be offered in human uh, history, that we are not free to do that either related to our own lives and offering God something less 
been the fullness of our lives, every portion of our lives as a daily sacrifice. And Paul is saying, only this is holy to him. Is God supposed to, I'm exhorting myself this morning, is he supposed to get excited after having sent his only begotten son into the world to pay that awful price for the forgiveness of my sins? And me to read it as in Mark chapter 11 as we'll, or chapter 15 as we'll study tonight and to study the greatness of that sacrifice and then have him be impressed that I offer him 10% of my life in the face of that, 20% of my life in the face of that, 50% of my life in the face of it. It's in the front and Paul knows it would be in the front. And he wakes us up to the fact that only this is holy to God, this kind of a commitment to God, and only this kind of a Christian life is acceptable to him. Whatever else might be the standard of God's people in any culture in the world today or throughout history, where we begin to compare ourselves among ourselves and we redefine Christianity and what we'll do and what we won't do, and, and then Christianity gets defined within the culture as you know, something far below what Paul is, is, is describing uh, to here. Paul is saying all of that is to be res resisted. Only this is holy to God. Only this is acceptable uh, to God. Again, in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi seriously rebuked God's people over the affront that it was to God to have them offering their leftovers uh, to God as opposed to what God required. And I wonder, as I allow the passage to search my own heart, how many of us, how prone we can be to settle into a leftover relationship with God where everything else in life, every hour of the day, every hour of, of the week is given over to this thing and to that thing. And then if I can work something in for God on a given day or on a given week or in, in a given year, and then we end up with this thing that we just shoehorn him in some place in our life as if that's supposed to be holy to him and acceptable to him and not be an affront. And what he rebuked under a lesser covenant in the Old Testament, he would rebuke under this covenant as, uh, as uh, well. This great tendency to somehow think I can give him the leftovers, the partial, uh, something less than the whole, and, and, uh, and the fullness of my life, and that's supposed to make him happy. Paul declares further that all of this is to be our reasonable service toward God. That word reasonable is an important word. In the Greek, it's uh, logikos. We get our English word logical from that Greek word. And what Paul is, is talking when he says, this is our reasonable service. This is not an extraordinary sacrifice. This is not being a super Christian. This is only reasonable for each and every one of us. And he is declaring that this kind of a sacrifice and a commitment to God is only logical. In the light of the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, 
in his death upon the cross and the suffering that occurred there and the great sacrifice that was uh, endured by the Father uh, as well in providing us with this salvation. And, And when we stop and we think about it for a moment, we realize that it's true. We realize that to offer God anything else than our lives completely and wholly as a living sacrifice, it would be completely illogical. How is it that God could deserve anything less than this from us as a logical response to what Jesus did in order to pay the price to provide to us the fullness of chapters 1 through 11. Not just words on a page, but realities within our lives and realities that will go on for eternity. No, only a living sacrifice is worthy, a worthy response to what has first been done for us. And so we ask ourselves, and I allow the passage to search my heart uh, this morning, in the privacy of our own heart, have I presented my life to God as a living sacrifice? Is that the relationship that I have with Him? And if it is, then great. But if it isn't, then this is where we begin as a Christian, settling the issue of His Lordship within my life, head to toe, top to bottom, inside and out. And if I convince myself that there is some other Christianity than this, and I proceed to make myself comfortable in that that Christianity, I have only deceived myself into thinking that this is something that can please God or that He is worthy uh, of. And the importance to look and say, Again, the privacy of my heart, if this does not represent the sacrifice, every time his obedience to his word becomes hard, every time it requires sacrifice, every time it requires self-denial, I do precisely what I want, and his commandments can just uh, go take a hike. Then to stop and to say, no more of that. That is not holy, that is not acceptable, and I'm going to give the fullness of my life to this Christianity, not the one that I've defined, or Christianity as a culture around me is defined, but the one that Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 12. The second exhortation is, do not be conformed to this world. And when he talks about the world, he's not talking about soil. He's not talking about dirt. He's not talking about the globe. He's not talking uh, about continents or countries or mountain ridges or great plains or anything like that. When he speaks of the, wor- the world here and not being conformed to it, he's talking about uh, the world in terms of uh, this age, this present age that we live in, this world system that we live in as Christians. It's all around us. And the great characteristics of the world system, there's only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's everything else. And the everything else operates under the same rules and under the same uh, demands. It operates without any consideration of God. 
It operates without any hesitation in rebellion to God, in rebellion to His Word. It is not submitted to God, not submitted to His Lordship in any way, and it operates entirely outside of God's kingdom. That is the world that He is referring to. And we all have experience with it as Christians. It is the context that we live our kingdom life in, in the middle of, in, in the fallenness of this world. And so this world or this age, Paul has told us elsewhere, is evil. Uh, writing to the church at Galatia, he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The world, this worldly system, it is governed and ruled by God. He is called in this, uh, rather by Satan. He's called the God of this age. All rebellion against God and His kingdom had its origin in, in the devil, in terms of, of, of the creation. And he's behind all rebellion against God to this day. And Paul declared in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, that Satan is the God of this age. And he warns not to allow this system that operates in rebellion to God, not to allow that to conform us for all of its power to conform us as Christians. And that word conformed, it means to be fashioned or to be molded. Some of you are familiar, having studied the passage before, that J.B. Phillips has the absolute classic translation. By the way, any of you building a library ought to have a copy of J.B. Phillips's translation as a part of your library. It'll always do you good. But he takes and he uh, translates this verse, capturing it perfectly when he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And what is this mold? I think the Apostle John addresses it very nicely in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15. I'll read it for you. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever." And to be conformed by the world is, when I, is to then allow myself, in a nutshell, to live supremely for all of the fleshly desires of my body. And we know, uh, we all experience them, to live supremely in life for material things or for selfishness or for myself without any regard for God. And this exhortation of Paul not to be conformed to this world, it tells us two very, very important things. One of the things that it tells us is obvious, but it has to be stopped and considered for a moment. 
and that is that the world is constantly trying to conform us into its mold and into its image. And it works all day, every day, to conform our morals, to conform our standards, to conform our uh, definitions of right and wrong, to conform our thinking, to conform our attitudes, our doings, our speaking. Again, at its core, it is to live for sin and to live for self as opposed to living for God. And Paul is declaring here, and again, important to understand it, at its core, there is nothing neutral about the world that we live in. And if we think there is, we are fooling ourselves. Everything in this world is endeavoring to conform us. And if you, ever, if you sit here this morning, you say, I think I am oblivious to the powers of confirmation, or conforming rather, in, in the culture that is uh, all around me. It doesn't affect my thinking or my doing or uh, in, uh, on any level at all. I, I, would, I would contend that what the Apostle Paul is saying uh, here is, is false. Well, if you want proof of how powerfully the pressures of the world around us uh, conform us, just pull out some old photo, uh, family photo albums. And then watch the progression of hairstyles you have worn through the years and the progression of uh, clothing that you have worn uh, through uh, the years. And, and you look at those old albums, and the further you go back, the more uh, horrified you are by them. You can't believe that you wore a crew cut at one time, or that you buzzed your head at one time, or that, you know, you had the shag haircut the, the way that you did. And then we'll keep it a secret, but, uh, but the, if you haven't removed them from the album, that you wore a mullet uh, way back when. They, they do say today in terms of haircuts that, that all styles are in in terms of for men. Uh, but the, the, lone, uh, uh, f- the, the lone forbidden haircut uh, through history and, and currently is a mullet. No one is to wear uh, a mullet. And yet we did. MacGyver wore a mullet. We had a mullet, some version uh, of a mullet. And why did we do it? Why do we look back on it and say, I can't believe it? Why did we do it except that it was in style then and everybody else was doing it? And then to stop and think this morning, here you clothed yourself to come to church today. And here you are, your hair is cut in a certain way, you're wearing certain clothing and all of this, and, and, and what we're oblivious to is that 10 or 20 years from now, when the pictures that are taken of you today are in an album, your children, your grandchildren, yes, even yourself, will look back on those pictures and you will rue the day that you walked out of the house looking the way that you did. This is something that goes on all of the time. This conforming process, evident even in, 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 in fashion, and it isn't just hair, it's clothes. I mean, who's wearing poodle skirts today? And uh, hip-hugger bell-bottoms. Oh, we'd love to, uh, but we've put on some weight. Or the platform shoes or the whole disco thing. One-piece jumpsuits for men. Remember when that was going on? 
and you women, the men as well, all of the shoulder pads that were in all of the clothing, nobody would walk out of the house wearing any of that. And yet there was a time in which everyone did. Sweater vests, parachute pants, even even uh, MC Hammer couldn't uh, get that uh, to, to turn fashionable. It almost ruined his, his career as, a, as a, a, an Irish comedian. <laughs> then you've got other fads, like the slinky, or when I was in elementary school, the, 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 the troll figures and dolls that everybody had, the lava lamps, the cabbage patch dolls. Do you remember the fist fights that occurred within the stores because there weren't enough cabbage patch dolls for uh, the population and they had to be uh, lottery, lottery in order to get them. And then the, the absolute genius, marketing genius of all time in history, Pet Rocks. All of the different diets that people have gone through. They come up, they come down, they come into fashion, they go out of fashion. And we look at all of these things and we see them in terms of hair. We see them in terms of fads. We see them in terms of diet. We see them in terms of clothing. And then we fool ourselves into thinking that the conforming power of the world stops there as if it has not moved then just as powerfully into every other part of our lives if we do not actively resist that conforming power in our lives. It doesn't stop with those things, but it works then to fashion our morals and our thinking and our doing and our definitions of right and wrong and what we view to be the meaning and the purpose of life and what it means to live life uh, successfully. And that essentially life is to be lived for sin and self as opposed to be lived for God. And then contrary to what Jesus taught, that life does consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. The great conforming message to the Western world. And the second thing that this exhortation not to be conformed communicates to us is that this conforming pressure uh, must be actively resisted on our parts if we're to live free from it. Which brings Paul then to his third exhortation, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 2. And he says, now rather than allowing ourselves to be conformed to the world, instead we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And there's a there is a a a promise here of transformation. In other words, rather than living a conformed life, living like everyone else in the world and being fashioned by the same things that everyone is fashioned by in the world, which no spiritual Christian could ever want in our lives, he says we can now experience transformation instead. There is nothing that we are missing by not being conformed by the world. And to the Christian alone, there is a transformation that is made available uh, to us. And that word transformed is the word metamorpho in the original language, the Greek. We get our English word metamorphosis from that same Greek word. And that word metamorphosis, it describes, among other things, that process that occurs in a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. 
And here you have this caterpillar becoming a butterfly, being remarkably, I mean, it's just a miracle, remarkably transformed from something inferior into something superior. And Paul is saying that not only are we not to be conformed to this world as Christians and become something less than what we are, but we have available to us as Christians a transformation that will make us something far more than what we are. Well, that certainly should have all of our attentions as Christians desiring uh, not to be conformed with this world, but desiring spiritual transformation. And the question that it raises then is how does this transformation occur within our lives? This great change from a caterpillar uh, into a butterfly. And, and he gives us the answer. It occurs by the renewing of your mind. And say, what is a renewed mind? A renewed mind is a mind that is being fashioned by God and not by the world. It is a mind that thinks like the Word of God. It's a mind that tests every thought that comes into it, every message that the world is putting out, and it tests those thoughts and those messages by the Word of God. And it allows into one's mind whatever matches the Word of God, but what doesn't match the Word of God, it takes and it casts out because that's going to conform me uh, after the world. It takes it captive and throws it out. Paul spoke about this into, to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. And he said, for, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God or against what we know to be true about God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It simply asks concerning every single message in the world, whether it's communicated by a loved one, by a spouse, by a friend, by a politician, by a commercial on TV, by a movie, by a song, every single message that is, that is, is being put forth, it simply asks, what does the Bible say about that? And if it matches what the Bible says, then it is allowed to stay within our minds. And if it doesn't, then out it goes whether it has to do with religion, whether it has to do with salvation, whether it has to do with morality or definitions of right and wrong, or whether it has to do with marriage or childbearing or our speech or forgiveness or sin or temptation. And as I make this renewed mind characteristic of my life, as I do this, as I put things to that test, it results in a transformed life. It results in a vastly superior life than the one that the world offers us if we will only compromise and conform uh, to it. And of course, all of this 
transformation by the renewing of our mind involves not only the Word of God, but the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the Word of God. Paul writes of this, again, so much of this to the church at Corinth, which had settled into a carnal Christianity. And he wrote to them, for those of you taking notes, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 3, rather, uh, verse 18, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And one of the results of this transformation that occurs within our lives on the basis of the renewing of our minds, once this characterizes our lives, Paul says, is that one of the characteristics it will bring into our lives is that we will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, the life that he is describing, the life that is on the other side of these three exhortations that he's laying out here, uh, it will put our lives on a path that ends up proving to the entire world, and it will end up proving to us ourselves that the will of God for our lives as it's revealed in the body is good. It is good for us. It is acceptable. It is acceptable to God, and it is perfect. In other words, it cannot be improved upon. And our lives become such that we not only uh, know the will of God, as excellent as that is. Paul's not just saying, you do this, and you will know the will of God. As wonderful as that is, he goes way beyond that. And he declares that if we live this kind of life, our lives will prove the will of God. And it will prove God's will and His way in a human life to be good and to be acceptable and to be perfect. And we cannot, by holding on to our own lives or by being conformed to this world, experience a life that is better than the life that God has planned for us. And look at the world that we live in. And look at the nation that we live in. Look, for instance, just at the anxiety epidemic that marks our nation and marks our world. The anxiety that people are living under. And though there are, without a doubt, many, many contributing factors uh, playing into all of it. But who wouldn't be anxiety-ridden if there were no definitions, true definitions of right and wrong, and you had to get out of bed every single day and decision by decision determine what is right and what is wrong? Who could live under that pressure? Or if everything, including truth, is in play, there is no ultimate truth. Or if there is no ultimate purpose or meaning in life. Or if we did not have a safe place to park these overactive minds someplace uh, in the world in order to find peace. 
or if there is no foundation to build our lives upon that will hold up under all of the storms and the difficulties of life and not only hold up but prove that this way is good and acceptable and perfect. Who wouldn't have anxiety in being conformed into the image of the world and missing the transformation that comes from God and from His Word? Life can be hard enough even when all of these things are in place in our life, it is impossible to live life without them. And this peace and this confidence and this meaning in life that is found only here and found by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and then presenting my life to God as a living sacrifice and then determining in the power of the Holy Spirit to no longer be fashioned by the world, but by the Word of God, and then to be transformed by that renewing of our minds. And Paul closes, and I'll close this with just noticing one final word before we leave the passage this morning, and it is the word that he begins the entire section with. It's the second word. It is the word beseech. And he begins not just verse 1, not just verses 1 and 2, but he begins the entire section of 12 through 16 with the words, I beseech. And the word beseech means, I beg you, please. And here you have the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to the church, Christians in Rome, and to every Christian in the world, and to every Christian in this room, and he is declaring, I beg you please to heed these three exhortations and make them characteristic of your Christian life. He does not say, I demand that you do it. I force you to do it. By apostolic uh, 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 authority, I make you do it. He doesn't do that. He says, I beg you please to do it. And his use of the word beseech, Paul, it, behind it is Paul's recognition that no one can do this for another person. Even an apostle cannot make this decision for another person. It is a decision that we can solely make for ourselves to choose to embrace these three exhortations of Paul ourselves. But he pleads with us, he begs us, he does everything short of forcing us to understand how important it is. I beg you please, brethren, by the mercies of, of God. The passage isn't that complicated. In fact, it's very, very straightforward. And the question is whether... It reflects my commitment to God and my relationship with God or not. And if my life is not characterized by the exhortations that Paul lays out here, that he begins the entire section with, the importance then to just stop and the privacy of my heart to recognize it before God who sees all things and to repent and to repent, and to say, Lord, I've been operating under a self-determined, self-will, culturally Christian culture, defined Christianity. My Christian life doesn't even approach one of those exhortations, let alone three of them. I repent 
of what I have turned your Christianity into in my life. And I turn from it this morning. And then to stop and surrender your life fully to God this morning. And then to determine then to cease to be conformed by this world. And then to give yourself to the renewing of your mind through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. And this is where Paul starts by saying to me as a Christian, to you as a Christian, God does not want a part of your life. He wants all of your life. He doesn't want 50, 50, 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, 95, 5. That is not a worthy response to what we saw demonstrated in history in the death of the very Son of God upon that cross in order to provide this Christianity uh, to us. He's deserving of all of it. But Paul also says with it, if you will take and walk down this path, you will not regret having done so. Christianity is constantly being redefined by attempts to in every single culture in the world and none more powerfully than in the United States of America because of the wealth to attempt to do it and how desperately we need passages like this to lay out the straight line of what this life is about and what we've committed to up against what we have become based upon the origin of wherever these definitions have come into my life that have left me with a crooked Christianity. And then to turn to what is true and genuine and then to experience the glory of the life that is found only there only in the will of God and His plan for our lives. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for this clarity. I need it. I need it, Lord. I've got a knucklehead inside of here and I am as prone to live this Christian life on my own terms as anyone in this room. But I thank you for how the passage is so strong and how it searches. And I pray for myself. I pray for every person in this room and the fellowship hall and beyond. And we pray for one another that you would continue, Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit in and through this passage in our lives into the afternoon and into the evening, Lord. And do not let us go into this self-deception of this self-determined and defined Christianity and then to miss the glory of this. Or, Lord, to live a Christian life that is an affront to you and is unworthy of the sacrifice that made it possible. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.